0: Thanks for downloading Dark Histories. Before we start, I just want to throw out a few ways that you can get involved and help support the show. We have a Patreon, Amazon booklist, list, coffee, and Audible affiliate link. So if you're interested in supporting, hopefully you can find a way that best suits you. All of the links for those things can be found either in the show notes or over on the website at darkhistories.com. Of course, just continuing to spread the word about the show on social media, Leaving reviews and sharing with all your family and friends is also a huge help. So thank you to everyone for all that. Alright, enough of this. Let's crack on with the episode. Tokyo, Japan, 1948. A man walks into a bank, announces himself to the manager as an official of the local government health department, instructs the staff to take an inoculation medicine, and walks out, leaving 12 of them dead from poison. Upon first hearing an overview, this might sound like a somewhat unique and trivial bank robbery, but this is post-war Japan, a country with many secrets, and a population with many grievances. This is Dark Histories, where the facts are worse than fiction. Hello and welcome to Dark Histories. I'm Ben. This is season three, definitely season three, episode 20. I hope you're all doing very well. This week's episode, quite excited about. Um, For a really long time now, I've wanted to sort of branch out and do some episodes in more areas than just sort of England and America, which is generally the focus. So I've been kind of keeping... An eye on and and trying to sort of track down something interesting in in other countries. And there's there's plenty, I'm sure there are plenty. It's just actually kind of finding solid sources and stuff in a a different language. And particularly in Japan, I've been kind of looking because I can speak Japanese as a second language. So I've been really looking for a long time. And um, I actually came across this episode, the story we're going to go in this week, sort of indirectly because I, I, I was looking. For a different episode and sort of stumbled across this story. And I thought that this story was kind of more interesting. So, yeah, I'm really looking forward to this one. It's nice to branch out a little bit, do something a little bit more international, spread the dark history's wings a little bit. So, yeah, it's, it's really nice. So, I hope you enjoy it. Before we start, I want to say thank you, as always, to the patrons. Um, and thank you to our newest patrons. We've got Helen, Alex, Trevor, Grassy nice. Laura, Christina, Wonderlust Prime, which is just a wonderful name. Damien, Jeff, Stacy, Erica, Carakella, Alana and Amber. So yeah, thank you very much for supporting. It's going to come in real handy, especially right now, because it looks like my audio interface is just totally shit the bed. Um, I keep having to restart it. So, yeah, that's going to come in real handy, actually. So, yeah, thank you very much for supporting. I, I literally found that out about a minute ago. So I'm trying to, yeah, okay, we're just moving on. <laughs> so, yeah, thank you very much for your support. I, I really do appreciate that. That's that's really, really helpful. With the thanks said, I don't think there's a, a great deal. There's We're coming up for Halloween. So... I don't really need to announce too much about that. I am doing a bonus episode for Halloween, like always, so look forward to that. But otherwise, no big announcements. Let's get going. This is Sadamichi Hirasawa and the Tagian Incident. During the Second World War, Tokyo, like many major Japanese cities, had been heavily carpet-bombed. In the final year of the war, 157,000 tons of cluster bombs, many with payloads of napalm, had been dropped over the country. Though in history, these air raids have been eclipsed by the atomic bombings of Hiroshima and Nagasaki that nailed home the Japanese surrender. With many of the structures at the time being made from wood, the firebombing devastated cities, leaving 15 million citizens, some 20% of the population, homeless overnight. Fields of stone chimneys struck out of the debris into the ash-filled sky The Japanese surrender was announced on live radio by Emperor Hirohito on August 15, 1945 It was the first time for most of the population to have heard the voice of the Emperor A man they had up until this broadcast Believed to be the deity of their home nation A nation whose empire had a divine, inevitable right to victory Less than 90 years prior Japan had been entirely closed off to the vast majority of the outside world, yet now it suddenly found itself with new foreign masters as the country became officially occupied by the US under Supreme Commander of the Allied Powers, General Douglas MacArthur. The country was demilitarized and the empire dissolved. Amongst regret, bereavement, anger at both the Allied forces and the Japanese empirical throne, a state of emptiness and loss hung heavy over the nation leaving people with no choice but to find a new way to move forward. Initially, food in Japan was scarce and sickness commonplace as the rapid end to the war severed Japanese supply lines and saw the return of over 5 million of its empirical soldiers. Black market economies sprung up alongside alcohol and drug problems. However, democratization of both politics and many of the social aspects of Japan saw the country eventually begin to rebuild with a new, liberalized enthusiasm. It was a tumultuous, chaotic period, rife with large-scale failures and successes, crime and opportunism. In the middle of all of this, a man strayed into a bank in Tokyo, declaring himself to be from the Ministry of Health. He had, he said, come direct from the American Central Command of GHQ, and he had bought medicine. In the early afternoon, January the 26th, 1948, the small wooden pawn shop, recently converted into the Shinmachi branch of the Teikoku bank, was conducting business in its usual way That is, it was struggling with the usual lack of staff and high turnover of custom That morning, 7 of the 21 members of staff, including the branch's manager, had called in sick Ordinarily, this might have seemed strange but in post-war Japan, the high levels of fatigue and sickness due to poor sanitation, homelessness and lack of food had seen many businesses routinely having to cope with the workforce with very little stability. As the remaining 14 members of staff fought through their grinding daily routine, a customer walked in wearing a long brown coat, red rubber boots and a government official armband on his left arm. Upon closer inspection, The armband signified him as a member of the local Ministry of Health and it wasn't long after he had asked to speak to the branch manager and met with the deputy that he declared himself as such. He handed over a business card that stated that he was a welfare epidemiologist, and though no one who saw the card could later remember the name, they said he seemed calm, respectable and had a medical air about the way he carried himself. He quickly explained his presence at the bank and the present local situation. A drinking well in the vicinity had been suspected as the cause for an outbreak of dysentery, and in attempts to control the outbreak, the doctor was at the bank to administer medicine in order to inoculate the staff. The branch deputy was initially wary, however, the doctor reassured him that the medicine had come from GHQ, General MacArthur's offices themselves, and was good for the cause. By 1948, the Japanese had become accustomed to falling in line to American orders, and in the bank, as elsewhere, the branch deputy conceded and cast away any doubts that he may have had. There was one small issue, however. The medicine that the doctor bought to help the staff had to be ingested, and it had a tendency to damage the enamel of one's teeth, and as such, he would have to demonstrate how to drink it quickly before they were to take it. The branch deputy dutifully collected up the staff members, 14 in total, along with two members of one of the worker's family, and all stood around and watched as, using a small glass military-issue pipette, the doctor dropped some of the medicine into a cup of Japanese tea, poked out his tongue, curling it inwards, and down the drink in one. This was vital, he said, to ensure that the medicine does not damage the teeth. He then explained that one minute later, which he would time with his stopwatch, they were to drink a second medicine, and once again demonstrated himself drinking from the small Japanese cup. He then turned his attention to the 16 cups before him, each filled with a small serving of Japanese tea, and once again, using the pipette, dropped a small measure of the first medicine into each cup, which the staff collected and all at once, on the doctor's word, knocked back the cocktail. A minute passed, the hands ticking on the doctor's stopwatch. Some of the staff members complained that it burnt their throats, but they were quickly reassured that the second medicine would calm any irritation. One minute later, they once again, on the doctor's word, knocked back the second medicine. Almost instantly, the foul taste and irritation reached a point for the staff that they asked if they could excuse themselves to the bathroom to rinse their mouths, and the doctor consented. The deputy, too, excused himself. In the bustle of the staff to get to the bathroom, the doctor casually rounded up his business card and teacup and collected 164,450 yen from a nearby desk along with a cheque for 17,450 yen. As the staff began filtering back from the bathroom, many suddenly began to drop to the floor, ill, and within half an hour, the doctor stepped over 10 dead bodies, one of which was the 8-year-old daughter of one of the employees, as he exited the bank. At around 4pm, a member of staff burst out from the back door of the bank, screaming for help, and the hospital was alerted. Six members of the bank staff were taken to the nearby Shinoochiai hospital, but by the time that they arrived, two more had passed away. By the time the police had been notified of the afternoon's occurrence, the mysterious doctor was long gone. The police investigation was quick to react. By the next day, an operations HQ was set up with criminal director of the Metropolitan Police, Jiro Fujita, heading up the investigation. Speaking with the four surviving witnesses from the bank, one of the earliest steps in the investigation was the construction of the first ever composite photograph used in Japan. Cutting up photographs, police pasted together a montage of the suspect using the eyes, nose and mouth of previous criminals' mugshots based on witness descriptions. It was far from perfect and over the span of the investigation, it went through a further 10 amendments. The investigation instantly threw up strange questions. Although the culprit had stolen a significant sum of money from the cashier's desk, the equivalent to over 35 years' worth of salary from an average university graduate job at the time, he had left behind far more. There was over 410,000 yen left behind in the bank, including 350,000 yen in a single package stored in the unlocked and wide-open bank vault. Then there was the question of how the supposed doctor had taken the poison in front of everyone when he ran his demonstration, but presumably remained unaffected by the poison himself. At 2.30pm the same afternoon, a man walked into the Itabashi branch of the Yasuda Bank, 3km north from the scene of the poisoning from the day before, and cashed the stolen cheque. Police attempted to follow it up as a solid lead, however soon found that the address given to the bank was fraudulent with no name or address written on the back for the check at all. Having very little else to go on, police took a sample of the man's handwriting and instead focused on trying to uncover any previous potential incidents in the local area. It didn't take long for this line of inquiry to bear fruit and police soon came across witnesses that were attesting to two potential incidents from the weeks and months prior. The first took place on October the 14th in 1947 Three months earlier, at the Sugawara branch of the Yasuda bank, 10 kilometres to the west of the Teikoku bank. A doctor had approached the manager and explained a similar story, that the locals were suffering from dysentery and that he was there to administer an inoculating medication from the Ministry of Health. The staff were dutifully rounded up and the medication drank by all, but after waiting around for 10 minutes and no effects appearing amongst the staff, the doctor made his excuses stating his concern for the late arrival of the disinfectant crew and left the bank saying that he would chase them up and return however no one in the bank saw the doctor again at the time he had handed over a business card with the name of Dr Matsui Rin frustratingly the branch's deputy manager had held his own suspicions over the dysentery story and had snuck out to a phone box to make a call and to check the doctor's story with the local authorities between them they quickly uncovered that there was no outbreak of dysentery in the area at all and he had rushed straight back to the bank, but had just missed the mysterious doctor. The second similar occurrence had taken place just one week prior to the Teikoku bank robbery at the Nakai branch of the bank of Tokyo, just two kilometers away from Taikoku. Once again, it was 3pm when a man strode in, declaring himself to be from the Ministry of Health and handing over a business card this time with the name of Dr. Jiro Yamaguchi, he told the manager that a local family had been suffering dysentery with the family name Otani and that they had been informed that Mr. Otani had visited the bank on that day, therefore all rooms, money and cheques must be disinfected and the staff inoculated. The manager checked to see whether or not the story matched the facts and to see if Mr. Otani had indeed visited the bank. As it turned out, he had and he had deposited a large cheque. The problem was, his address did not match with the address given by the so-called doctor. When the manager returned and asked him if he had made a mistake, the doctor said that, perhaps he had, he would return to his office and check. As a precaution, he took a small bottle of liquid, sprinkled it on the check and made a hasty retreat from the bank. Neither of the two stories had been reported to police and as such had seen no press coverage, so a copycat robbery was ruled out. And the names on the business cards were chased up. Unfortunately, Dr. Jiro Yamaguchi was found to not exist at all, and police concluded that the card was more than likely a fake with fictional details. The first card, however, used in the Yasuda Bank in October, bore the name of one Dr. Matsui Rin, and he certainly did exist. Police arrested and questioned Dr. Rin, but it was established soon after that he had a credible alibi backed by many witnesses. This wasn't a dead-end, however, due to Matsui Rin's rather key and somewhat peculiar dedication to organization. He explained to police that he had exchanged business cards with around 600 people, and of those, only 100 were the version of the card used at the Yasuda bank. Whenever he exchanged cards, he wrote the date, time and place of the exchange on the back of each card that he had received. This opened up the path for police to find a potential suspect amongst the cards held by the incredibly anal doctor. Of the 100 cards exchanged that could hold the potential suspect, 62 were quickly traced and cleared of any suspicion, whilst a further 22 cards were deemed irrelevant to the investigation as their details failed to match those described by witnesses. Police finally narrowed this search down to 14 cards, which contained potential suspects. Whilst police trailed these 14 potential suspects, Six of the bodies of the victims from the bank poisoning were sent to two different university hospitals, Tokyo University and Keio University, for analysis. It took some time for results to return, with Keio first to announce their findings, confirming that traces of a cyanide compound had been used as a poison. The results were, however, preliminary, and to further understand the nature of the compound used would take more time. This, however, did confirm what most already knew. The fact that poison had been administered, and so police began to theorize how the killer had administered the poison to himself and suffered no ill effects. The most convincing theory they came up with was that a harmless oil had been used in the same bottle of the poison, which would have floated upon the surface. As the pipette was dipped into the fluid, the killer would have kept the penetration shallow for his own drink, thereby sucking only harmless oil into the pipette and dipped the pipette deeper into the second layer of fluid for the bank staff, sucking out poison. As for why he had used two medicines, there were two theories. Either the killer had used some kind of binary poison that remained inert until an activation substance was administered, or the first medicine was simply an inert substance to lull the staff into a sense of security when taking the second, poisonous substance. The investigation so far had been vast and long-reaching, and it had taken police six months to simply narrow down the stack of business card owners supplied by Dr. Matsui. In August 1948, as far as suspects went, police were finally able to make further ground, and they began zeroing in on one suspect in particular, a 56-year-old local artist by the name of Sadamichi Hirasawa. Born on February the 18th, 1892, Sadamichi Hirasawa had moved to Otaru in Hokkaido, the northernmost island of Japan, with his parents at the age of six. He flourished as a young artist and by his late teens began to specialise in the tempera style of painting, an ancient technique which utilised paint pigment mixed with egg yolk and water. By the age of 22, he was selected to exhibit work at the Ni-ten a government-sponsored national Japanese art exhibition held yearly in Tokyo. His rise as an artist continued and saw him join the Japanese Watercolour Painters Association and exhibit frequently in both national and local exhibitions. Two years later he married and moved to Tokyo, taking on a job as a lecturer at the Tokyo Art Academy. The evidence that police held on Hirosawa was, some might say, tenuous at best. Foremost was the damning fact that he had been previously arrested on four occasions for fraudulently attempting to cash checks around Tokyo Writing a fake name and address on the rear of the checks When Hirasawa was asked about the business card he received from Dr. Matsui He could not supply the police with it as he claimed that he had had his wallet pickpocketed the previous summer And the card was inside at the time Police also noted that his bank deposit book showed a deposit of around 130,000 yen in the days following the Tagian robbery. Not the exact sum of money stolen from the bank, but it was a large sum all the same. And lastly, and perhaps most bizarrely, Criminal Director Juro Fujita, who headed the investigation, concluded that his family name was judged to be suspicious. Regardless, on twenty third of August, a member of the Tokyo Metropolitan Police arrested Hirasawa at his family home in Hokkaido and escorted him by train back to Tokyo. Police contacted the survivors of the poisoning and requested they come in to ID Hirasawa, along with eight other witnesses. However, rather than any traditional lineup, Hirasawa was simply presented to each witness individually and asked if they recognized him as the man who had claimed to be the doctor. Of the eleven witnesses six negatively id'd him whilst the following five said that they thought he bore a resemblance but they could not positively or negatively id him either way with any certainty as for Hirasawa himself he vehemently denied involvement but could not explain where the money he had deposited into his bank in the days following the crime had come from police responded by bringing in inspector Hachube Hachitsuka a member of the Metropolitan Police was some renown for previously solving a series of high-profile cases. Hachitsuka did, however, have some rather unorthodox methods in his arsenal and promptly started on a long series of interviews with Hirosawa that most would class as torture sessions. Within two days, Hirosawa protested this treatment by stealing a glass pen from a desk, slashing open his left wrist and smearing blood on the wall of his cell, Writing innocent in large bloody characters. A guard promptly discovered the scene and sent Hirasawa to the hospital wing, effectively saving his life and foiling his attempt at suicide. He repeated this first attempt twice more on both the 22nd and 24th of September by running headfirst into a wall while screaming, I swear by heaven and earth I am innocent, and the second time by overdosing on medication, though both attempts similarly failed. On the 27th of September, three days after his third attempt at suicide, Hirasawa confessed to the Tagin poisoning and robbery, repeatedly giving oral confessions, and finally a written confession on October the 5th. On the 8th of October, Hirasawa was moved to the Cominato Detention Centre, where he was treated for shock before being officially charged with poisoning, robbery, and also the two counts of attempted robbery from October and January, prior to the Teikoku bank incident. Due to his state of shock, however, Hirasawa appeared to later be unaware that he had signed any statement at all, and further, he seemed not to be able to recall meeting with the chief prosecutor, who had taken his written confession. As if this wasn't murky enough already, his confession contained several glaring inconsistencies. The poison was in a bottle similar in shape to a beer bottle, I poured the substance from the bottle directly into the cups. Instantly, the first inconsistency stands out from Sadamichi's confession. The doctor who had been in the bank had been seen to use a glass pipette, described as one similar to those issued to medics in the Japanese army. However, in Sadamichi's confession, he said he had poured the poison directly into the cups. The cups, too, created a second inconsistency. In his confession, Sadamichi used the foreign loanword, kapu, rather than the Japanese word for a traditional teacup, chawan. In Japan, this is not simple semantics. By using the loan word, Sadamichi was indicating that the cups used were in the style of a typical Western cup. It was around this time that things with the Teikoku bank incident took a sharp turn to something rather more dark indeed. Whilst Hirasawa had been undergoing torturous questioning, both Keio and Tokyo University had released their final analysis of the victims' bodies from the poisoning. Shortly before Hirosawa's confession, Keio had proposed that a chemical known as acetone cyanohydrin had been used as a poison, whilst later, Tokyo University claimed it to be potassium cyanide. The differences were vitally important. Potassium cyanide was a common substance available throughout Japan to anyone with the mind to procure it. There were, however, difficulties with the results of potassium cyanide as the poison. Its effects didn't seem to tally with the known facts of the case. Potassium cyanide would have likely been instantly fatal and would have caused chaos in the bank. Acetone cyanohydrin, on the other hand, was a different matter altogether and had links with the much darker aspects of Japan, one which many people were working rather tirelessly to keep in the shadows. Officially known as the Epidemic Prevention and Water Purification Department, Unit 731 was a Japanese military unit headed up by General Shiro Ishii, based in Manchukuo, modern day northeast China with a series of satellite branches including one in Shinjuku, Tokyo. The main facility stood on 6 square kilometers of ground surrounded by a trench and 3 meter earthen wall with a further 2 kilometers no-go radius that included a no-fly zone upheld even for Japanese aircraft. The facility was populated primarily by prisoners picked up throughout the Japanese empirical territories of Manchuria, Korea, Mongolia, Russia, Malta, and China, along with 3,607 known Japanese who worked within Unit 731, many of which were supplied by universities and medical schools from mainland Japan. Prisoners were transported to the facility by overnight rail, which also brought in research materials for the unit to make use of. Whilst there is no complete list of work undertaken by the staff of Unit 731, since the war, details have emerged of some of the cruelest human experimentation seen amongst the war that was positively jam-packed with war crimes from all sides. Codenamed Maruta, prisoners which consisted of criminals, anti-Japanese political prisoners, homeless, handicapped and a generous helping of citizens swept up for undertaking suspicious activities, were the subject of vivisections, amputations, the removal of internal organs and reconfiguration of digestive systems, all naturally without any form of anaesthesia. Grenades, bombs and flamethrowers were tested on live targets to study their effects with their targets tied to stakes hammered into the ground, along with various exposure experiments that would gradually increase exposure until the subject eventually died. Including x ray, air pressure, starvation, electrocution, burning, burying subjects alive, and injecting them with substances such as seawater and animal blood. Prisoners had limbs and extremities dipped into ice water to test the effects of frostbite, whilst other prisoners were forced into participating in sex acts to study the spread of syphilis. Women were routinely raped and forced to carry pregnancies often while carrying some kind of fatal disease, to test the effects. One other crucial arm of experimentation undertaken at Unit 731 included the invention and testing of biological warfare systems. Flea bombs used to spread bubonic plague were devised, along with bombs that could spread typhoid, dysentery, cholera and anthrax over vast distances, whilst clothing drops were performed throughout unoccupied China to spread diseases amongst the unsuspecting population. Details of a handful of the experiments were published in peer-reviewed medical journals at the time with the experiments being claimed to have been undertaken upon Manchurian monkeys. As the war came to an abrupt end, Unit 731 was hastily liquidated in an attempt to conceal the horrific history of what had been happening at the headquarters. Victims throughout the war period had been dissected and then incinerated on-site in efforts to keep the whole thing tightly centralised and as the chaos of surrender loomed and the Red Army strode nearer to the facilities, orders were given to destroy as much evidence as was possible. This included murdering the remaining prisoners along with the Chinese and Manchurian labourers that worked on the site and buildings were blown up as the evacuation completed. During the post-war occupation of Japan, General MacArthur struck a deal that saw the details of the experiments and any documented research traded exclusively with the Americans, who were keen to keep the Soviets in the dark in exchange for immunity from prosecution from war crimes. Many of the head doctors that operated some of the most brutal experiments, though tracked by the Americans, went on to occupy key medical posts in both the public and private sector. The Soviets took a different tact and did manage to prosecute 12 members of staff from Unit 731. However, thousands more dissipated back into mainland Japan under the guise of normal imperial soldiers or military staff carrying small dosages of potassium cyanide handed out to them by General Ishii, which they were told to use if they were captured in order to take their secrets to the grave. These dosages of potassium cyanide might be considered highly relevant to the Teikoku case, but there is, in fact, a much more substantial detail. Throughout the war, the Ninth Research Institute of the Japanese military, known as the Noborito Institute, were closely linked with the development of poisons and bacterial weapons. One of the fruits of their research just so happened to be acetone cyanohydrin, a poison which activated several minutes after its ingestion. The problem for the Japanese authorities and anyone else attempting to keep the Japanese biological and chemical warfare programs quiet was the fact that acetone cyanohydrin would have only been available to those within such programs and any mention of one program was likely to uncover the whole, tightly knitted operation. Back in the Komonato detention center, Sadamichi Hirasawa was preparing to stand trial in December of 1949 for the poisoning of 12 people the robbery of the Teikoku bank, and the attempted robbery of two more banks. Almost immediately after his confessions were taken, he had recanted them, at times explaining that he had not even remembered giving them at all. At this time in Japan, a confession, no matter the method of extraction, was admissible as evidence in court, and as such, the lack of other evidence slipped by the wayside. His trial commenced on the 20th of December, in the Tokyo District Court, where he instantly pleaded not guilty. Sadamichi's primary defense centered around a coerced confession backed up with evidence of a medical condition that he had suffered following an attack by a rabid dog and the ill effects of a rabies inoculation. His doctors claimed that after the inoculation, he had fallen unconscious for three months and upon his recovery had been showing the symptoms of Korsakoff syndrome, an amnestic disorder characterised by bouts of amnesia and invented memories created in order to fill the gaps left by the said amnesia. This, he said, accounted for the four cases of him cashing fraudulent cheques in the past, because he could not judge correctly the consequences of his actions at the time. Hirasawa also pointed out that none of his fingerprints were found at the scene, showed the court negative results of an analysis of the handwriting taken from the man who had cashed the cheque the day after the incident, and gave an alibi backed up by six witnesses, that he was out taking a walk at the time of the incident, though perhaps, as it was in the vicinity of the bank, it was better for him that it was thrown out either way. Curiously, the poison used to kill the bank staff was referred to throughout the hearing as potassium cyanide, and there was no mention of any doubts surrounding the substance or conflicting reports from KO University given. On the 24th of July, 1950, Sadamichi Hirasawa was found guilty and formally charged with sentence of death. On the same day, Hirasawa put forth a request for a retrial, though one year later it was dismissed. Once again, on the same day of the dismissal, a request for retrial was submitted and four years later, in 1955, it was rejected. Curiously, in this time, not a single official had stamped Hirasawa's order for his execution, which left him suspended in limbo, unable to obtain retrial but no closer to having his sentence of death carried out. Throughout the 1950s, several Japanese journalists and authors began to scrape away at the surface of the crimes undertaken by the Japanese Unit 731 during the Second World War and in 1959, author Kiyohara Matsumoto published a book on the case titled The Mystery of the Teikoku Bank Incident, which posited that a former member of the Japanese Unit 731 was the culprit it further went on to suggest that the money deposited into Hirasawa's bank on the days following the crime was procured by the artist after he had painted and sold a pornographic painting, an act which he would have wanted to keep quiet at the time due to the embarrassment it would cause his family and the damage it would cause to his reputation as a serious artist. Between May 10, 1955 and April the 21st of 1987, 18 further requests for retrial were submitted and denied and Hirasawa became Japan's longest-standing prisoner on death row. Still, almost 50 years after his trial had ended, not a single official had stamped the approval for his execution. After his transportation to Miyagi Prison's Sendai Detention Branch, which housed the equipment to execute prisoners, his sentence was still never stamped, despite the fact that most prisoners were executed within a week of their transfer and the previous record holder for longevity lasted a mere three months. Whilst in jail, Hirosawa had painted over 1,300 paintings, with materials supplied by his supporters. At one point, he was even given his own studio space in the prison that he could go to to paint away from his cell. In 1963, an exhibition was held in Tokyo that displayed his works exclusively painted throughout his imprisonment. On April 29, 1985, Hirosawa was moved to Hachioji Medical Prison due to his age. He was by then 93 years old and had spent 38 years in prison and two years later, on May the 10th, 1987, aged 95 he passed away in Hachioji from pneumonia. Throughout his nearly 40 years spent in jail, he maintained his innocence and not one single government justice minister ever greenlit his execution order. Several posthumous requests for retrial have since been submitted. In 1987, 1989 and the latest saw the 20th request for retrial submitted in 2015. So, who was guilty for the murder of 12 innocent Tokyo civilians in 1948? If it had been Hirosawa, why had no one signed off on his death sentence? If it was not him, then who? Hirosawa later admitted that he had painted pornographic paintings, and his family members spoke of at least four that they had personally known him to have painted after the war. In 2000, several paintings attributed to Hirasawa were unearthed. Whilst the money deposited to Hirasawa's bank in the days following the incident officially remains a mystery, it seems highly likely that Hirasawa kept its origins a secret to maintain face with the artistic community. The poison used in the murders still to this day remains a mystery. It seems doubtful that it was potassium cyanide given the delayed effect it had on the victims, however the exact compound was never confirmed. Further deepening the conspiracy, there are several that suggest that the links the universities had at the time with Unit 731 and Japan's biological and chemical weapons programs, along with the ties to high society, would have played a role in hamstringing the publication of the results. If an ex-Unit 731 officer was involved with the poisoning and the robbery, the details leaking out to the public would have caused a great deal of embarrassment for Japan and a great deal of trouble for America had struck the immunity deal to keep the information from the Soviets. In fact, various journalists from Japanese national newspapers were attempting to unravel the goings-on of Unit 731 at the time of the Teikoku incident, but all found themselves pressured to drop their investigations. A reporter from the Yomiuri Shimbun, named Endo, was contacted directly by Jiro Fujita, the head of the investigation for the Teikoku case, who told him, Please stop your investigations into the incident that you are currently trying to uncover. This is a command from a top authority. It's a complicated matter with various relationships involved and General Ishii and his troops will not be brought down without the aid of exposure from a first-class spy. Please follow this request and think of others." General Ishii, the head of Unit 731, reportedly told American interrogators at the time that he himself believed one of his men had been involved and that the method of poisoning undertaken by the criminal was an almost exact repeat of an experiment carried out at Unit 731 during the war. However, General Ishii is the only person to have ever mentioned such an experiment and until then, Unit 731 had never had known direct involvement with the administration of poisons on a large scale. During the war period, general poisons were handled by a different biological warfare division entirely that of the Noborito Institute Whether or not one believes this is somewhat moot when considering a conspiracy however as it's not unthinkable that members of Unit 731 could have had contact with the poison in their programs and with the two programs being tightly linked as they were one can easily imagine a conspiracy to cover up the true identity of the murderer regardless if they were from Unit 731 or the Noborito Institute as the discovery of one would have likely led to the discovery of the other In reality, Ishii's words would only prove that the killer was a former member of Unit 731, rather than the Noborito Institute There are others, like journalist Haruko Yoshinaga, who suggest that the Takoku case was actually an American human experimentation test itself though the evidence is flimsy at best, suggesting that the poison was that of a binary kind and not a poison handled by the Japanese at the time Yoshinaga posits that the two earlier attempts at robbery and failure were proof that these were failed experiments and goes on to conclude that they were therefore American tests of a poison that they would go on to utilize in later warfare. Speaking of Sadamichi Hirasawa at an exhibition of his prison work held in Tokyo to commemorate the 70th anniversary of the case, Azo Yamagawa told the Japan Times, We have to continue making efforts to prevent memories of the case from eroding because injustice will continue unless his innocence is proved in a retrial. So that was the story of the Tagian bank incident. A little bit of a shorter one this week, but I hope you enjoyed it just the same. I thought it was a really interesting kind of conspiracy story probably with some credibility behind it as well. Not a complete pie-in-the-sky conspiracy. So, yeah, I hope you enjoyed it. Um, We'll talk a little bit through some of the the sort of goings-on after these short advert breaks. Thanks for listening to Dark Histories. This podcast is entirely independent and funded by myself and listener support. So in order to do that, I need to run a few ads. Our long-time advertising partner is Audible. And the reason I've stuck with them for so long is that they offer a service that I actually use and enjoy myself. And I do think it actually offers value to people like myself who enjoy podcasts. If you're unaware of what Audible is, it's an audiobook subscription service which charges a monthly fee in return for one credit, which you're free to spend on any audiobook you like. The catalogue is huge. Multilingual and covers everything from fiction to series of lectures. They have an iOS, Android and web app. And if you use more than one, they all sync up together so that you can listen on any of your devices without having to skip about. If you ever feel like you want to take a break from the subscription, you can do so and you get to keep all your previously bought books. And when you get into a drought, you can just fire it up again and start gaining credits seamlessly. Some of my favourite books on there to date are The Complete Sherlock Holmes, which is read by Stephen Fry. And they've also got the original Exorcist book and just a huge history back catalogue. And I've really enjoyed all of those, basically. So if this sounds like something you might be interested in, head over to audible.com forward slash dark histories. And that's dark histories, all one word. And you can start a free trial that offers a monthly subscription with one free credit so that you can instantly pick an audiobook of your choice. If at the end of the trial you feel like it's not really for you, you can just cancel it and it's cost you nothing and you get to keep your free book. So once again, that's audible.com forward slash dark histories, or you can find the link in the show notes. So earlier I mentioned listener support and there are a tonne of ways that you can get involved and support Dark Histories. The main way is to become a Patreon patron. If you listen to a lot of podcasts, I'm sure you're familiar by now. But for those, not so much. Patreon is a way to make a monthly pledge in return for some small perks. On the Dark Histories Patreon, I set my pledges as low as I can, really, with options for one, three and five dollars per month. And for that, you gain things like early access episodes without these horrible ads, PDF notes, and resources that I make and find during my research for each episode. There's also access to the live stream archives and more. So, if you enjoy the show and you think it's worth it to you, hop over to darkhistories.com and you can find all the ways that you can support, including our Patreon, or just check out the links in the show notes. If none of that appeals, then sharing it around with all your friends and family is equally as helpful and just as much appreciated. So if you're here, then thanks so much for not skipping the ads with that 30-second skip button and giving my hard sell a listen. I'll let you get back to the episode. Cheers. Welcome back. So the Takeoko incident, yeah, it's, it was a bit of a shorter one. Was, I think that's mainly down to the fact that I didn't go too much in detail on Unit 731, which is a consequence of the fact that that's how I came across this case through researching Unit 731 for an entirely separate episode. Because at some point I want to do an entirely separate episode all about Unit 731, because I mean, that really is like an entire episode in itself. So I didn't want to kind of delve too deeply into it. I just wanted to give an overview. So that that kind of greatly kind of shortened the Backstory to the case, if you like. So, yeah, I sort of breezed over that. But in the future, if people are interested, at least, I suppose this is a good way of gauging interest. I've sort of been researching Unit 731 anyway. So, um I would really like to sort of put it into an episode at some point. So, yeah, I guess it's a good way of gauging interest. If you are interested, let me know. But yeah, interesting story. A really, really interesting story, actually. It's one of the kind of great Japanese mysteries. It rarely gets spoken of outside of japan and i don't i think it's probably quite obscure but inside japan it's quite well known if you're into kind of mysteries and and sort of crime and and such then you you probably will have heard of it if you're japanese i reckon the where it gets a bit murky is the unit 731 thing because i mean i i try not to get political on this podcast at all i try and leave that out of it you know this is escape but to sort of delve a little bit japan have never really like admitted any of this stuff so obviously they're not really taught you about unit 731 at school or anything like that but people know about it it's quite widely known and and so yeah this mystery is it's quite widely known um i think possibly all around you know because in in america i i i would i'd be interested to know how many americans knew that MacArthur was such a shyster um because you know you, you hear about MacArthur a lot as being this the guy that kind of rejuvenated uh, Japan and and kind of modernized it and liberalized it and, and all the rest of it and, and and what a great job he did in Japan and then he, he kind of went over to Korea and and did a kind of similarly great job there which is is not necessarily true but um it's interesting I think when you hear that it you know the, the kind of dark sort of deals you do on the side and and this is really one of the most dark I think is is oh you know we'll we'll give you immunity if you give us all your research materials on human experimentation. It's um it's pretty ugly. Um so I I, I wonder how well it's it, this sort of thing is known in you know Unit seven three one and all that is is known in Japan in um, sorry uh, America rather as well because like I say it's it's kind of an ugly heart of post-war japan um i think probably we're all taught you know in england as well you know we're all taught that um, that the 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 american occupation following japan was all roses you know which of course it wasn't but that's the line we're kind of the mainstream kind of line we're fed at at school education and things like that right where i mean school education is a whole different story isn't it but that, that it tends to breeze over these incidents and and just we get the victors Viewed from the victor's lens, I guess. It's, um, you know, filtered out to be sort of all roses. But yeah, you, you hear these sort of, like I say, these kind of dodgy deals that were done and it all gets a little bit murky and ugly, which is why I think it's just really interesting because I, I, I quite, you know, I like conspiracy theory, but obviously a lot of them are mental. But I do think in this case, like, I, I absolutely believe that um, Sadamichi Hirasawa was not guilty for this crime at all. And I do 100% believe, I'm not sure I really have a a kind of, uh, whether or not I think the the criminal was definitely from Unit 731 or not, um, like an uh, ex-Unit 731 worker or not. Not sure I really need to believe that or not. The only thing really is that I definitely believe in the conspiracy that they wanted to keep it. You, you know um, investigations into unit 731 quiet at the time that that's just seems obvious to me i mean it's, it'll be you know it's a conspiracy technically but I, I really don't think it is i think that's fairly obvious that that's what was going on and it's not a far leap to imagine that in order to keep that quiet they had to just kind of skirt the issue when it came to this case. Yeah, you know, I'd be interesting to hear people's opinions whether or not they think it was definitely someone from Unit Seven Three One or not. Like General Ishii, the the guy who kind of headed Seven Three One, he actually came out and said, "Yeah, I, I think this was a you know a guy from Unit Seven Three One. I, I think this was one of my men." So you, yeah, sure, but I mean, do are we really going to trust that guy? I mean, I, that General Ishii guy is clearly an absolute. Subhuman waste of space. So I, I, I don't know if I, we should really trust that word he says. So yeah, whether or not it was someone from Unit 731 or not is, is not, not here or there, really. I think it's, um could have been anyone, really. A couple of things, like little details. So the fake doctor, the the, the, the culprit, um, the criminal, um, he tested the poison in front of both the other staff to sort of show them that it was okay. I don't know why he did it. I don't know why he tested it or felt it, felt the need to show them him drinking it. I guess it was just a way to lull them into a sense of security and keep things calm in the bank. But I thought it was quite ingenious the way he did it. Um, so people have mainly theorised that he floated an oil in the top so that it stayed on top of the poison. And then he dipped the pet, pet into that and then the, all the way in for the poison. I, I thought that was kind of ingenious. It's just a sort of you know interesting no uh, I, I did think that was quite clever because I, I i was sort of wondering about that as i was researching it i was kind of because re- that didn't come up to quite a lot later and i was spending the whole time thinking well yeah but how did he do it and then it, when i read it i was like oh that's quite clever um but yeah uh you know otherwise i guess i found it sort of one of the puzzling aspects was that, that he failed he went into so there were the two um, attempted robberies—the one in October and the one in, in a week before. Um, and I—I I found it interesting that one of them failed quite badly, and that they actually all drank the poison, but nothing happened. That was weird. You know, was that just him? Say, some people have came out um and said that they think it was the Americans doing human experimentation. I I don't buy that at all. I think that's a really flimsy accusation. I think more than the Americans doing the experimentation, I wonder if it was him doing the experimentation. Like, did he know? So let's say he was a member of Unit 731 and he had access to this poison. Did he really know how to use it? So I wonder if those first attempted robberies um, where where they, they drank it but nothing happened, I wonder if he just kind of screwed up the dosage Or or what? Because otherwise, why did that happen? That that was quite interesting. I I thought that was an interesting element. But yeah, why did he leave so much money behind as well? That was another... that, That is an interesting aspect. He took a lot of money. And maybe he was just a modest bank robber. I don't know. But he took a lot of money, but not all the money. That seems weird because he certainly had the time to take all the money if he wanted to. He had... Ample opportunity, you know. He he wasn't rushed. I mean, that was in a sense that was the whole idea of poisoning was to put it on, put everything into his terms, so he could rob that bank as quick or slowly as he wanted to. Really, so I find that interesting that he didn't spend the time to pick up all of the money when you know he he left it behind a significant sum, like five hundred times what he stole. So I didn't really understand why he did that. Unless he just thought, this is all I need, this is enough. Because what he stole was quite a large amount. Perhaps he was just a modest criminal, you know. Perhaps he just took what he needed. <laughs> because it, it throws up a weird question. Because obviously the fact that he left behind money instantly throws up kind of questions of deeper conspiracies. You would think that if he'd gone into that much to organise the the, the the poisoning and all the rest, and he'd failed twice previously, so he was obviously dedicated why would he not have bought a bag big enough to carry the money? That seems weird. And why would he leave it all behind? It just seems weird. The only only other thing I can think of is is that he planned to do it more times than once. So he thought, oh, I can leave that behind because I'm, you know, I'm going to rob several banks. Maybe he he sort of planned to do several several hits sort of throughout Japan, and it, and it was only the fact that this one kind of ended up throwing up so much stink that he couldn't continue or something i really don't know i mean this is all conjecture but but i mean you know it does leave question like an interesting question as to why he didn't take all the money it seems peculiar to me when you go to that much effort to rob a bank to to leave behind some like i say does it point the way to a deeper conspiracy and maybe the money was taken just as a token gesture to show that it was a robbery i don't know uh, again, that that sort of leads you to what then? What what was the deeper conspiracy? Was it further human experimentation? I'd, I'm not sure. I'm willing to walk down that path, but it's an interesting question. It's an interesting part of the case. Um, and say, Sadamichi Hirasawa. Do, I definitely don't think he was guilty. I think he was 100 percent innocent. I think it. I think it was unfortunate that he got caught with the four counts of fraudulent checks before that did stack against him quite heavily. But otherwise, I, I think there was zero evidence, and I think his confession was quite clearly coerced. I mean, he says that he doesn't even remember giving them, and and he does question. There, there are sort of some questions over the uh, not only the fact that he was coerced. So, so first of all, you've got the question like, like because he, he gave a like or a bunch of oral confessions, and so you get the coercion into the oral confessions. But the written confession, he says he doesn't even remember doing. So he suggests that they were forged, like his stamps were forged, and that someone else wrote it and forged his stamp. And because in Japan you don't sign, if you're not aware, you, Japanese use a little wax seal that they um, dip into red ink and then like like a little kind of stamp. Like, right? and that's how you stamp your name on like official bank documents and things like that. So he he says that he thinks his stamp was um, forged, basically. Um, So that's, you know, another interesting thing. Although there was also, I think it was a stamp and his thumbprint. So they would have had to have forged his thumbprint. How they would have done that, I don't know. But I I definitely think he was innocent either way. I think you could just simplify that. And I don't think he needed to to really say that it, you know, even get in that sort of slightly mucky path of forgery or not. I think he could just have simply said it was coerced because it clearly was. You know, you can tell just by the fact that he tried to commit suicide three times and it was only after the third time failed that he kind of just confessed almost. I think, you know, you you reach that point where you just think, you're just throwing the towel, right? Like, if I confess, this will be over. So I think it's quite clear that that, that was what happened. I, I definitely say, I think he, he definitely didn't do it. It se- seemed to me like, yes, he had a lot of money in the bank that he cashed. Say again, unfortunate. He cashed it just after the... Event happened, I, I think that seems quite clear. I think that's quite quite easily cleared up by the pornographic folk, uh, painting that he done. Seems like that. It's, it's totally fair that at that time in Japan, probably even now in Japan, that's not the sort of thing you want to admit to, uh, but especially at that time, um, it, it was before kind of sexual liberation in Japan, really, or it was, a, it was kind of around about the same time uh you just uh sort of sexual liberation was kind of starting to come to Japan so I can fully see why he would have kept that a secret. Um he he did have a, a, a good reputation as an artist. He he relied on his for his income. You know he taught he lectured at uh, an academy. So yeah, I definitely think that's where the money came from. Uh he says he lost he had his wallet pickpocketed and he lost the business card. I think that's completely plausible so yeah I definitely don't think it was him I definitely think he was innocent again kind of flopping onto the conspiracy the university element to it is interesting um, with Tokyo University which is a, a a university that had and still does have really good links with government officials and hoi I, I definitely think they could have been pressured to give the potassium cyanide result and, and cover up the acetone cyanohydrin uh, result. I, I I definitely think I could have, you know. So I definitely think that feeds into the conspiracy quite quite easily as well, like or or at least it feeds into the conspiracy angle with some level of credibility. So yeah, really interesting story. I, I don't, we don't we don't do too many conspiracies on dark histories, but I just really enjoyed this one. Um, I've been looking for a kind of mystery from japan for a long time and and i I did think this was a good story and i did think it was a an interesting conspiracy that is probably a conspiracy in you know it probably really did happen you know it has a level of credibility behind it it's not totally kind of the you know hollow earth or anything (laughs) um so yeah that's that and also i thought you know uh, the, the episode could kind of work as a primer for the unit 731 episode that i would you know, say I'm I'm gonna be interested in doing it at some point in the future. So yeah, thanks very much for listening. I'm probably gonna leave it at that and leave the rest of the discussion because I mean there is a lot to talk about, but I can just sit here talking to myself about it for, for ages and just going around in circles. So I'll I'll leave the rest for the live chat discussion, which will be next week on YouTube. If you want to come along, uh as always, watch out for that the details of that. will I'll put it onto social media come along and join in if you would like. You can get involved in the text chat or or come on the live stream. It's a free for all, quite loosely structured. So the structure is basically today we're going to talk about last week's episode and see where it goes. And and most often than not we end up completely off topic, but it's always fun. It's that's what it's meant to be. It's just a, a way to hang out with everyone and and chat about what we all think went on. So yeah, if you want to come along, come along. Uh say um uh, details of that will be on social media. You can find all the links to that either in the show notes or on darkhistories.com and there you'll also be able to find a way to contact me which is uh, email or you can phone up and leave a message or you know you can PM me through um, or DM me whatever through Instagram, Facebook, Twitter and all of that is on darkhistories.com. You can also find out ways to support which is gratefully received always, very much so. Thanks very much for listening. It's been a pleasure as always. I'll see you in two weeks, which should be near enough Halloween. And there will also be the Halloween bonus. So that'll be a couple of episodes that week, I guess. Thanks for listening. Let me know what you think. Give us a rating on iTunes. Thanks very much. Cheers. Take it easy. I'll see you guys very soon. Thanks very much for listening. Sleep tight.